0: Pieces of pie with meringue stretching up six inches off the plate. Enormous slices of cake set beside abundant piles of whipped cream. Bright orange and green and red rectangular prisms of jello glistening under fluorescent lights and saucers stacked with piles of recently baked cookies just begging to be eaten. These are the memories that I have of Morrison's cafeteria. (laughs) As a kid, Morrison's was such a treat. Rarely, but on special moments, our family would go there right after church on Sunday, and it was a treat in part because it was the only place I knew at the time that let you see your dessert before you chose it, and that was special. The only decision I really cared about in the cafeteria line was which dessert I would eat. Yes, I knew that I would have to pick meat and vegetables, but what five-year-old cares about fried chicken and green beans when there's coconut cake to choose? It was always disappointing to get to our table and unload the cafeteria tray, setting each plate and saucer right where it belonged, and then to be reminded by my parents that I couldn't eat that piece of coconut cake until after I'd finished everything else. Having spent so much emotional energy into the selection of a dessert, it seemed like a crime to have to watch it staring at me while I ate the rest. Such is the struggle of a five-year-old at Morrison's. It's hard to find Morrison's these days. It's hard to find Piccadilly, which bought Morrison's a number of years back. It's hard to find any kind of cafeteria because that phenomenon that catered to that temptation, that American temptation of limitless choice has been replaced by another American temptation of limitless calories. And now it's Ryan's or Golden Corral that have taken the place of a somewhat dignified Morrisons or Piccadilly, but you know that phenomenon, that that mindset that the cafeteria represents is still alive and well in a number of American institutions and perhaps no place has provided a home as comfortable for that cafeteria mindset as American Christianity. Is there any image better for who we are and what we do than a cafeteria? Think about it, we're, we're not just Christians, we're Episcopalians or Baptists or Methodists or whatever the label we choose to apply. And even the label Episcopalian isn't good enough. We're not just Episcopalians, we're the high church variety or the low church variety or the broad church variety. We're liberal or progressive or moderate or traditional or conservative depending on what day you ask us? We like to go through the religious line of the cafeteria taking only what we want, leaving behind what we don't like, and when the new preacher won't let us leave it behind, we leave him behind and go (laughs) to a new place, right? I know, I get it, I get it, right? Yeah, yeah. How else do we explain the phenomenon that deeply Committed evangelical Christians and deeply committed liberal Christians who follow the same Lord represent opposite ends of the political spectrum. It's a cafeteria. We take what we want, we leave behind what we don't, and as a result, we find ourselves following our own brand of Jesus without realizing it, worshiping an idol of our own creation. That's not what Jesus had in mind, is it? And it's hard to read John 6 without getting a glimpse of just how far we've wandered off the path. Jesus, for four weeks now, has been telling us about the bread of life. And each week, the message has grown in its intensity. First, it was loaves and fish. Then loaves of fish became bread from heaven, and then bread from heaven became flesh and blood. And in today's gospel lesson, we've reached a breaking point. Some of Jesus' followers have had enough. They've heard him preach a sermon in a synagogue about how those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will live forever. And their stomachs have turned and they're starting to push back. They're beginning to grumble among themselves about how this can be, but Jesus senses it and comes to them. And when Jesus comes to them, they're hoping that he'll give them a little wiggle room, that they'll let them off the hook, that he'll let them off the hook, that he'll wink at them to let his closest followers know that he's just making a point for the crowds. But Jesus doesn't give them, give us, what we're looking for. Does this offend you? He said to them, and their eyes went down to their shoes, regretting that they had mentioned anything at all. Does this offend you? Well, what then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he had been before? Does this offend you? Literally, does this scandalize you? Does this cause you to stumble or trip? I don't know about you but I prefer the gentle, reassuring Jesus who takes me by the hand and says, did I say something that offended you? Let me put it another way so that you're more comfortable. But of course, that Jesus doesn't show up in John 6. That Jesus doesn't really ever show up except in my imagination. (laughs) The Jesus we wrestle with today comes and instead of soothing the hurt feelings of the crowd, he doubles down. And uses what is rhetorically the nuclear option. What, he says, if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he had been before. In other words, what if you saw God reach down and pull back the curtain and God reach down his arm and wrap it around me and point at me and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What about that? Would you stop complaining then? Would that be enough evidence for you? Would you pay attention to me or would you still find a reason to grumble about something I'd said? That's what Jesus gives them and there's not a lot of wiggle room in that. This week in staff meeting, Father Chuck reminded us that the phrase flesh and blood doesn't just mean muscle tissue and red and white blood cells and platelets and plasma. In a Jewish context, in a Semitic context, the phrase flesh and blood means the whole person, the whole thing. Kind of like we Western Greek thinkers might say body and spirit or body and soul, the whole thing, the whole enchilada. So when Jesus says, take my body and blood, my flesh and blood, he's not just inviting us to eat him, though there is an element of that. He's also inviting us to take within ourselves everything that he gives us, both the physical implications and the spiritual ones. It seems that Jesus is tired of us picking and choosing the parts that we like. It seems that Jesus is tired of his disciples pretending to follow him when it's convenient for them. And that shouldn't surprise us, it's Jesus after all, right? Think of all the things that Jesus had done up to this point in John's Gospel account. He'd already chased the money changers out of the temple, calling into question the religious efficacy of their apparatus. He'd already sat down with Nicodemus, a leader of his people, and told Nicodemus to throw out everything he loved because he needed to be born all over again. Jesus had already sat down with a Samaritan woman at the well and offered her and her village, a village of outcasts, the good news of salvation. Jesus had already met with the invalid by the pool and healed him on the Sabbath, equating his work with God's work, work that never stops. And people were pretty upset about that. People get upset when the preacher insists that we stop talking about God and God's salvation alone and start doing the work of salvation That got the people's attention. Jesus wanted them to see that you can't honor God in your mind and your heart and your prayers and ignore God in your life and your work and your relationships. Because if you do, you're fooling yourself. And you're fooling yourself right out of God's kingdom. This is a difficult teaching indeed. Who can accept it? Well, because of this, John tells us, many of Jesus' disciples turned back. What a weighted phrase for us in our context. They turned back and no longer went with him. It seems that Jesus cared more about the content of their discipleship than the number of disciples who were following him. I wonder whether we could say the same thing about our church and its ministries. Jesus comes to the 12 and says, do you also wish to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Could we say the same thing to Jesus if he were speaking to us? Turn the other cheek, Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive without limit. Sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Take with you on your journey only the clothes on your back and the staff in your hand. Become like little children. Don't worry about tomorrow. Take up your cross and follow me. Hate your mother and father and even your own life. For the one who hates her life will find it. And the one who holds on to that life loses it. These are the words of spirit and life, but they're hard words. They're hard words. They're hard for us to hear. Will we hear them? Can we hear them? If we're only listening with the ears of our flesh, with the logic of this world, we will never understand what Jesus is inviting us to see. And if we think he's only giving us advice about the future, about the someday, about the one day when God's reign is manifest, then we can't be a part of him and his ministry. But isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why we've come on Sunday morning together to be a part of a community where we don't just listen to a preacher talk to us about the way of Jesus but we're a part of a community that invites one another to follow him with our whole lives? Isn't that why we're a part of this community? Isn't it because we've seen that the power of God isn't just a hope or a dream but a reality that we have a role in making manifest in the world around us? Isn't that why we're here? Because we want to take everything that Jesus gives us, both the thoughts and the hopes and the dreams and the work And the labor and the action and take it all inside of ourselves so that we might make God's dream a reality in this place. Isn't that why we're here? May it always be why we are here as a church and as individual followers of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.